all great ideas start with minority. It might be one person. It might be a few people. It might be a few people who are in the same town. But generally, all the best stuff starts in the hands and the minds of the few. Everything that we see around us has started in the minds of those who are brave enough to have original ideas, be ridiculed, persecuted, and sometimes have horrible lives. Sometimes they're not vindicated until after their lives, but we're thankful that they do. And in today's episode, we're celebrating minorities of one. Soren Kierkegaard famously said, the truth always rests with the minority, and the minority is always stronger than the majority, because the minority is generally formed by those who really have an opinion, while the strength of a majority is illusory, formed by the gangs who have no opinion, and who therefore, in the next instant, when it is evident that the minority is stronger, assumes its opinion, which then becomes that of the majority. So that got a little confusing at the end, but what Kierkegaard is saying is that the minority is the one who has to take the risk and think for themselves. And it's very easy to get caught up in groupthink and side with the majority on certain issues when in actuality, anytime we start talking about macro issues or things that encompass nations or the world or politics, it becomes very confusing. And oftentimes, you know, one of the reasons we don't talk about politics here is because you know, what are we actually talking about? Are we solving anything or are we just arguing about how things could be solved hypothetically or how things have gone wrong? So the second you start talking about problems that are way too big, they become diffuse, they become hard to solve. When if you think about things on a local level, on the level of the minority, it gets really exciting. That's what the Mission Daily is about. That's what we love to do. So what's the best way of figuring out how to become a minority of one or looking for the minorities of one that you might want to start replicating to become one yourself. Stories, yeah. gotta be. What kind, fiction, nonfiction? What are we talking about here? Gotta be stories. Well, so I picked out one in particular for this episode and I think it's a really cool story because it's a story about a woman who was a pioneer in science and she dispelled a lot of annoying stereotypes and stigmas of the time with good research, presenting it, selling it, and it wasn't easy for her, but it's something that I think that everyone who's listening is gonna recognize as uh, that's how you pioneer, that's how things get done. And so maybe that will provide some inspiration to you and everyone that's listening to, not you, but like every, everybody. personally. <laughs> like everybody collectively to nurture those ideas that they're afraid to share or that they think might be true or that they have noticed in their own life, but feel disempowered by science, which says, you know, ends of one. And when you have a sample size that's too small, science tends to not take those too seriously. Whereas that's where all science is forced to start because we're each individuals. So awesome. Before we jump into the story, let's give a shout out to our sponsor Twilio. So this October, Twilio is having the customer and developer conference of the year in San Francisco on October 17th through the 18th. It's called the Signal Conference. And if you go to signal.twilio.com, you can get 20% off your tickets today. So today's story starts back in 1863, and a little girl named Clelia is struggling in life. She has tuberculosis. She is always sickly. And when she grows up, her father, who's uh, Dr. Cornelius Mosher, is very well known in the medicine community and different circles of the movers and shakers of the 1860s. And he's a bit worried about her attending college. So he takes a lot of care to make sure she has an educational laboratory basically built for her 
in the, the back of their house. I think it's like a place where there's plants and everything like that where she can do research. But he's generally just terrified that his daughter's going to get sick, especially if she goes out to school. So Clelia starts working as a horticulturalist. Horticulturalist. There we go. That's a big word. <laughs> <laughs> don't I don't say it too often, only about two to three times a day. So <laughs> and Clelia is saving her money as she's working doing that. And her father's telling her, don't go to college. And then she ends up finally saving up enough money where she doesn't have to ask anybody else for permission. She's in control of her own fate, her own destiny. And she enrolls as a 25-year-old freshman in 1889. So back in those days, not only is that considered such a late start, but obviously people don't live as long. And especially if you've been sick your entire childhood, it's, you know, a lot of people would look at that as starting behind. Mm -hmm. And so at this time in history, when women have you know PMS or at that, that time of the month, it's viewed as a, quote, disability. And that's basically how a lot of people viewed it. And at this time, there are all kinds of restricting corsets and generally really uncomfortable things that make it tough to be a woman. And this is something that Clelia notices. So she becomes a professor. And at Stanford University, she starts doing more research. And in the early 1900s, she starts to succeed in dispelling all of these myths about women and about how their bodies work and everything like that. Because men were viewing that monthly time as basically making them inferior to men. Correct? Yeah. And okay. then uh, the resulting scientific research was, which was predominantly done by men, was all guided by that false premise. Mm -hmm. So it was generally men's view of women was resting on a foundation of just superstition, basically, mm -hmm. and uh, nothing scientific or con concrete. So Clelia starts to just disprove one of these things after another. So she's doing and conducting studies with women and actually listening to them. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of her work wasn't published until after her death, but she started to dispel everything and succeed at it. And this is just, you know, one more example where it's going to be lonely and it's not that, you know, you should do something that will only succeed after your lifetime, although that's certainly a noble pursuit. It's something that you should try to succeed at as early as possible. And there are so many different cultural taboos, no matter what era we're living in. There's all kinds of different things that we're not supposed to talk about or you're supposed to feel uncomfortable discussing. And I love this story for a number of different reasons, but I especially like the fact that Again, it's always going to come back to situations where, you know, her own family was trying to discourage her from going to college out of love, out of a sense of just caring about her so much. But she didn't let that stop her from really exploring some of her earliest inclinations, because what you don't hear in this story is that I suspect there was a thread of inspiration for this research that started very early on based on things that she noticed about her own body. And that's something that even in today's modern world, we are each treated as if, oh, well, I I could never be the uh, the resulting case study that proves something miraculous about human biology or human potential, when in reality, you might very well already have noticed certain things. And then in, the onerous becomes, you know, it comes back to each of us to start to journal more and take our bodies and our minds and our thoughts and the things that we put into our bodies much more seriously if we know that each of us holds the potential to dispel very negative myths or break down stereotypes. So we often hear about, you know, breaking the glass ceiling or something like that, which is great. But I think that there are 
plenty of actually far more biological secrets that hold the key, not just to breaking the glass ceiling, but to complete financial independence. These are secrets that can be spun out into a company, into a way to help women in general or men or kids or however you define yourself. If there are other people like you by taking your own experiences more seriously and nurturing those insights and those things that you notice, I think you can find really cool things. Yeah. And what I love about this story is that she created a whole culture shift towards how women should be viewed in the workplace or just in general by bringing up things that for the most part had probably never been talked about. I mean, women were told to hide, you know, certain things about their body that were completely natural, but you don't talk about that kind of stuff. So the fact that she brought this out into the public and made it known that this is natural and not only do women have very high pain tolerances compared to men, but this is something that should be viewed in like a very normal light. I mean, imagine how much impact she's had even till today, just by something that maybe at the time she didn't see it as having a big impact. She was just like, this is normal and I want to do research around it and kind of show that this is normal. But um, yeah, how big of an influence did she probably have? And how many people are probably telling her, you don't talk about that kind of stuff in public. You don't look into that kind of stuff. This is just the way it is. I just, yeah, that's just really inspiring. Yeah. And I think that this story provides a really interesting case study for something that we can all be on the lookout for and be aware of. Generally, when you're in the presence of a you know, thought police or a group of people who is trying to control your behavior or make you feel guilty for something, there's probably an extraction of resources that is about to take place or about to be attempted. And so often, whether it's a regressive uh, you know, attempt at a cult or a religion or something like that, there's always this sense of trying to make people feel really guilty. And then so making them feel guilty about their natural biological impulses and then trying to generate revenue in a recurring model, basically, which it's really, really tough to start any type of business, any type of movement. But at the same time, I think that we're very fortunate to be at a place in the U.S. where we don't have to make people feel guilty and we should move as far away from that as possible. And it's you know, case studies and stories like this that help pave the way to moving way out of guilt, way out of shame and into empowerment. Yeah, it reminds me of the quote from Henry David Thoreau. Every generation laughs at the old fashions, but follows religiously the new. And that's exactly what happened with everything she did. And a lot of the minorities of one that we view even up until today, people laughed at them in the early days and thought, you know, you're crazy. Why would you even try and pursue something like that? And now it's like, of course, this is working. Of course, SpaceX is going to work. Of course, you know, whatever people didn't believe before. And now it's just common day that, yeah, this is this is normal. Yeah. And I think that that quote is awesome, too, because it reminds us that it's very easy for a new majority to form from the opinions of that new minority that or that old, excuse me, old minority that were initially resisted. And it's important that we not let any type of belief system become rigorous and fundamental and stale uh, because you want to have an easier path for new minorities of one to get their ideas to help reach scale. And then new ideas have to be introduced and then that new majority has to be disrupted. And that type of ideological disruption is very exciting because it doesn't unlike the creative destruction that we see in the business world that is very painful and disrupts, uh, you know, thousands or millions of people's livelihoods, this type of ideological or philosophical disruption doesn't. It just generally creates cognitive dissonance or, you know, some some pain and it forces you to examine your thoughts a little bit more. But it doesn't, you know, 
necessarily shift or take away a bunch of resources. So I think that's really exciting and empowering to think about, you know, we live in the information age, which despite its name, there isn't a lot of slow, methodical, reflective thought. And one of the exciting things about that, though, is that there is this opportunity for podcasts and new mediums to advance new ideas, to see and to recognize when they become too stale and then go back out at it and try to find the new adventure, the uh, new exciting ideas again. Love it. So let's end with a quote from Clelia here. She says, I am finding out gradually why I am so lonely. The only things I care about are things which use my brain. The women I meet are not so much interested, and I do not meet many men. So there is an intellectual solitude, which is like the solitude of the desert, dangerous to one's sanity. That's an important reminder because being a minority of one is lonely, and you need to make sure that you're taking the right care of yourself, that you are, despite how hard it is to find people who are allied with you, that you never stop looking for the people who can help you nurture those ideas. No matter how isolated, no matter how lonely it is out there, you always have to keep seeking out new friends, experiences. And I think it's it's so hard to do, but the more you can force yourself to do it, the more likely that you're gonna stumble across that one person in a thousand that you feel connected to. And I think that those conversations are so great where you actually connect and where you feel the absence of negative judgment from someone because those conversations I found anyways are refreshing to me. They're almost like therapy where both both sides of the conversation and dialogue get something powerful, which is human connection. And in a previous episode, we mentioned that some researchers into addiction found that it's not as much addiction in the classical sense of how we think about it that's the problem. It's just the lack of meaningful human connection and finding someone else who is willing to to listen and actively listen to what we're saying and then vice versa, providing that sounding pad for the other person and you know actively listening in, in return. And that type of exchange is the you know the proverbial therapy that is going to enable each of us to yeah avoid what Clelia noticed here, which is that too much isolation, too much solitude is dangerous to one's sanity, which it certainly is. Yep. And if you're feeling a little isolated and need to find your community, don't forget to check out Twilio's Signal Conference in October 17th through the 18th in San Francisco. Use our promo code MISSION20 at checkout and get 20% off your tickets. Thanks, Twilio, for sponsoring this episode. Thanks so much. And in the next episode, you'll just have to see what it is because we're not telling you. (laughs) See you next time. Later. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.